My guest this week on the TRM podcast is one of the most fascinating entrepreneurs in recruitment. 30 years ago, Anthony Goodwin started Antal International with a unique model and a very clear strategy. And during our chat, Anthony's going to be talking about that journey from startup to the international operation it is today. We're going to be talking about entrepreneurialism. We're going to be talking about managing yourself as an entrepreneur, as a business leader. We're talking about going international. We're talking about how and Anthony and Antal has continually reinvigorated themselves so successfully over so many years. He has one of the most insatiably curious minds that I come across and absolutely loved our chat. We could have gone on and on. I really hope you enjoy. Massive welcome to the Tiram podcast to Anthony Goodwin. Anthony, very, very good to see you. Great to be here, Gordon. Thanks for the invitation. Um, now, you're founder of Antal, uh, and the I think it was the 1st of February 1993 when you got incorporated, and you've just hit the 30-year milestone, which is absolutely extraordinary. Uh, many of us don't make that. How did that feel? <laughs> well, you know... Uh, when I set out, uh, the, I actually started trading in April uh, 1993, and I remember vividly walking into Riverbank House on Putney Bridge and, and walking into this tiny office uh, with a, with a file, file bunch of, you know, paper filing system and moving in my computer and an old friend of my school friend of mine, Elliot Young, helped me move in. And, uh, you know, people said, well, why don't you just work from home? You know, in the days when working from home wasn't a thing. Yeah. Uh, and I said, no, no, I need, the, I need the discipline of going into an office. So I said, but that's additional cost. You know, when you're starting up, you know, keep, keep your cost to a minimum. And uh, I just thought, no, this, the right thing to do is to get an office, get some routine, get some structure, get some discipline about what I'm doing. And, uh, and so I moved into this small little office in Riverbank House with a whole bunch of, you know, it was before even uh, Regis. I think Regis had just started, Mark Dixon had just started, funny enough. I think he started in 1993. He's done a little bit better than me, but uh, not much. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, the, it was service to office accommodation uh, and... Uh, yeah, it just worked. It worked nicely for me. I remember putting in, inputting a database manually into a computer, which I wasn't very good at at the time. <laughs> I think it took me about six weeks just to get the, the British Chamber of Commerce of all the uh, UK companies investing in Central and Eastern Europe, because that was the thing. That was going to be my unique uh, selling point, my, my, uh, my raison d'etre above and beyond what everybody else was doing. Because you know, people forget the UK recruitment industry has always been highly competitive. Um, you know, Cigar, my COO, asked me uh, the other day when we were talking about these 30 years, um, is it more competitive today than it was 30 years ago? And I think the, the obvious answer is yes, it, yes, it is. Um, I think I saw from some of TRN statistics last week or the week before that um, more than 8,000 recruitment companies were registered 
in 2021 or 2022, which is a phenomenal statistic given that there are over 30,000 30, registered anyway. anyway yeah. But even back, in, even back in 93, um, there were over 30,000 recruitment companies registered. So I can only think there's, a, there's quite an atrophy, a decaying kind of rate at which they, they, they disappear or decide to do something else. But, um, but what well, was your, when you were, and obviously with the 30 year history, we, we, we can't go through the whole journey, but that, that, the, when you were starting out, your positioning to stand out and differentiate yourself was all about regional, going to regions where others maybe didn't exist or whether it wasn't as competitive. Exactly. That, that was the thing. So, so even in the name, so Antal is Hungarian for Anthony as many people already know, but it, some people won't because I have probably said it for five or 10 years. And that's the, that's the problem about uh, being around so long is, is, is that you forget new people are coming into the market all the time. You know, that marketing principle, the elevator, you know, new people are coming off the elevator or new people are coming off the escalators all the time. So yeah, Antel means Anthony in Hungarian. So the whole, the whole focus was to, to offer a first class service in recruitment into markets where many of the competition that we know so well, Hayes, Page, Waters, S3, they didn't exist in those marketplaces. So, so branding Antal as the company to go for when you're looking at expanding into developing markets. And that's still a strong suit of ours today. You know, we're, we're still strong in Africa, the Middle East, uh, Central and Eastern Europe, China, um, less so Southeast Asia, although that's on the, that's on the um, scorecard. But, but it's interesting because I think, uh, you know, I've probably onboarded about 400, 400 members into TRN since, since we set it up. And, and I think a lot of them, when they tell me about why they started and what they were trying to do, it was more about, I want to give it a go. Uh, I think I'm good enough to give it a go and build something. Very few of them um, typically tend to say, I identified a clear gap in the market. So it's always about, I'm going to come on, I'm going to try and do this better than other people and, and build something. But you clearly said, right, there is a gap there. Let's go for it. Yes. Yeah, I thought that was really important for me, is that um, I did want a specific point of differentiation. As you say, a lot of uh, well-meaning, well-intentioned, enthusiastic, very capable people go into the, the market because there are low barriers to entry and with a lot of energy and a good, good idea um, um, and the, the sales ability that you need in our industry and the tenacity and determination, all of those good things are all very necessary. However, my view was I always wanted to build a large enterprise so in order to build a large enterprise i was going to have to have that point of differentiation or I, I, you know i hesitate to say uniqueness because there's very few things that are unique in life um so but at the same time i needed that in order to for me for my own credibility's sake to say yes we are different mm. because we know the Polish market, the Hungarian market, the Czech market, the Romanian market, better than Michael Page, better than Robert Waters, better than Hayes, better than Esri, and so on and so on. And so we could genuinely say to clients, come to us before you go to them. We will find, we will, we will deliver the same level, first class 
service that you get in London, in Manchester, in Leeds, in Birmingham, but we will do that in Warsaw, Prague, uh, Bucharest, Budapest, um, Slovakia, and so on. Mm, yeah, no, that's really interesting. So, so if we fast forward to today, 30 years later, for those people who aren't familiar with Antal or as familiar, do you want to describe the, the organisation today? Well, that's easier said than done because um, one of our strengths and, and also maybe a weakness is the eclectic nature of the business because it's really a manifestation of, of what's gone on in my mind over the last 30 years. And that isn't always an orderly place to be. Uh, as I'm sure a lot of people um, would, would testify in their own, uh, their own minds. But the difference with, you see, I always said that businesses, particularly uh, early stage, are the outward manifestation of, of, of what the entrepreneur thinks and does on a daily basis. Um, and the great thing about being an entrepreneur is that you can have an idea one day and implement it that same day or the next day. That's also not necessarily a good thing because what you end up doing is having, you know, in, in the old uh, GCSE biology terms, is gangly growth syndrome. So you, you grow where, where the clients are or where the demand is and, and you kind of grow a little bit without solid foundations. And that's what happened in the 90s. So, so I, I, would, I would find somebody with good recruitment skills and say to him, where do you want to work? Oh, I want, I, I want to work in, in Beijing. Oh, but we'd rather set up an office in Shanghai. Yeah, but I want to work in Beijing. And they were good. I said, okay, we'll open in Beijing. And, and that's what we did. Or, or I want to work in Kazakhstan. Well, we're open in Kazakhstan then. And I want to work in Belgium. Well, that doesn't really fit. Brussels doesn't necessarily fit with Beijing. It begins with a B, but it doesn't fit with Beijing or Almaty in Kazakhstan or indeed Krakow in, in Poland, but we'll go there anyway. And, and that had its distinct advantages and its distinct disadvantages. So, um, so we went through a crisis in Eastern Europe in 98, five years after our inception. By the way, the first five years were stellar. And I remember having a, um, a, a five-year anniversary birthday party in the Langham Hilton uh, in London, central London, just off, off Oxford Street, Portland Place, I think, and uh, a fabulous time. And then just after three months later, a black swan arrived, or this unforese unforeseen event when when Yeltsin at the time uh, decided to default on his on his debt to the IMF, and then that imploded a lot of Central and Eastern Europe. But um, because I, as an entrepreneur, set up businesses behind the back of good people. We had already diversified into uh, Brussels in Belgium, Amsterdam in Holland, Paris in France, Milan in Italy. So we then had a spread of businesses in Western Europe, which supported the demise of the businesses in, in Central and Eastern Europe. And, and I, I don't know if you remember, but the... Um, we had uh, uh, the Y2K boom, but also there was an Asian contagion in 1997, which spread 
um, limit in a limited way to Western Europe, so much so that JP Morgan famously fired three and a half thousand people uh, in 1997 and then had to rehire them in 98 and 99 because the, because the, the uh, downturn that they forecast or the recession that they forecast didn't happen, mostly because of Y2K. Interestingly, I think 26 years on, we're in a very similar situation where there seems to be a confluence now of, of stories and information and statistics coming out, some of which predict a, a recession, some of which don't. Um, and, and of course, if you listen to the media, there's always a recession on. There's always reasons to, to be miserable rather than reasons to be cheerful. And so as an entrepreneur, I think one of the best things you can do is ignore uh, a lot of, of media reporting and, and just concentrate on the facts. So for example, bringing it back to today, you know, I've looked at the uh, figures from Ryanair and EasyJet, and they are airlines of the people, and they are, they're booking, well, they, they've had fantastic uh, last half of last year, and they've got fantastic forward bookings. So, you know, um, cost of in crisis, question mark. You know, the fact of the matter is that um, if companies like that are going to be doing well this summer, then, then it could well be that, that we are mirroring what happened in 97, 98 and 99. Um, then, of course, the dot-com bubble burst, which, which caused us enormous problems in 2001, uh, 2002. But, but um, what is interesting, I think, for, for your listeners is the, is the fact that I am predicting that we are going to have the similar situation as 97, 98, 99. In other words, 2023, 24 and 25 are going to be fairly strong years, particularly in the UK recruitment market and in the European recruitment market. Mm, brilliant. You, um, and you heard it here, um, just that principle about getting the right people on the bus, I guess Jim Collins would love you, that principle in the back in the day when you said if I find a good person and they're based, they want to be in they want to be in Beijing then we'll open up in Beijing. You've got offices all over the world. Does that principle st still stand? So if I find the talent, I will I will back that talent. Um, well, it's interesting uh, that I'm reading uh, Elon Musk's book at the moment, and uh, he says towards the end of the book that we forget. Sometimes, how to do stuff. So we, we took a man to the moon, I believe it was in 1968, and we kind of forgot how to do that. And, and with SpaceX, he had to reinvent that. Uh, and, I, and I found myself in a similar situation insofar as um, my CIO, Cigar Ruparadia, said to me, you know, how did you open all these offices? How did you get to a position in the year 2000 where you were 20 million turnover, 2 million EBITDA, and you're basically doing it on your own with a couple of other people and you got to 400 people. And, and one of the reasons, one of the ways was, was what, you, what you've just repeated to me. We backed good people. And from 2008 up until about 2019, we stopped doing that. And we just, we just looked after the people, we looked after the businesses that we had. We sold off a couple of businesses, which were probably in retrospect, the wrong thing to do. 
Um, and we stopped backing good talent. Interestingly, now, 30 years on, we've gone back to the original plan back in the, back in the late 90s of uh, building a centre of excellence in London, which we've just started. So we're taking on now graduates with either a keen interest in European cities or Southeast Asian cities. In fact, anywhere in the world, particularly if they've got language skills, mm. we're going to build these centres of excellence. Uh, we're going to build them in a way that adheres to a, a very disciplined, structured approach to and, and skill-based approach to recruitment. And we're going to say, if you want to go and work in uh, Saudi Arabia, in Jeddah, in Riyadh, or, or the MENA countries, um, which are Bahrain, Qatar, Oman, Dubai, we are, we're going to back you. We're going to, we're going to open in those countries. Also in, in Paris, Munich, Dusseldorf, uh, Frankfurt, um, Hamburg, Brussels, you know, all the European cities, mm. plus Southeast Asian countries. We've never really uh, got a foothold in Southeast Asia. So essentially what we're now doing is going back 25 years to our original strategy, whereby we do back, we, we take on young talent um, with the right attitude and approach, not necessarily with the experience. We, we've got plenty of experience. You know, we've got, if you take half a dozen of the best people or the longest serving people in Antal, um, you know, it's over 150 years experience. We don't necessarily need with people with more experience. What we need now is people with the energy and the, and the right positive attitude uh, to, to excel in their careers. Yeah, and it, it, it does seem that you, your model just lends itself to providing opportunities for, for people because you've got that international reach. I do, I do want to, I really want to get into sort of your reflections on as an entrepreneur and also your view on, uh, on some of the aspects of leader, leadership. And I know you're going to join us in March at the TRN Going International event, which is fantastic. Just, just briefly, your, your tips or, or, or experiences of growing internationally, going internationally, making the decisions, making the right decisions, the wrong decisions. What, 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 what are the sort of key lessons that you've learned over the years? Where to go and when to go and why to well, go? Well, you know, first and foremost, let's, let's be honest and frank, it's a very difficult thing to do. And it's, um, you know, it's, it's quite uh, uh, trepidatious. You know, you, you've got to, as I always say, you've got to take the risks to trust people. You know, we don't have, in business services and recruitment in particular, we don't have plant and equipment. We don't have research and development. Mm. You know, we don't blow up rockets. Mm. We don't have to build factories. We don't have to put down massive uh, construction foundations to build tower blocks. Mm. But what we have to do as, as entrepreneurs in this business is we have to pay people for not being productive knowing that that is part of our business model, knowing that, you know, you're going to take on five people and probably only two of them, if you're lucky, are going to be successful. That means you're going to pay in London salary terms between 30 and 45,000 pounds per person for three to six months, preferably less than three months. But, you know, you've got to give people a chance. That means that you're going to pay um, at least 
uh, as an entrepreneur, it's a lot of money when you're first starting up, you know, maybe 60 to 100,000 pounds worth of salaries that aren't going to produce anything for you. Mm. And you're going to have to do that again and again and again. And what, um, what's slightly frustrating for me is people, so when you've got all this experience, Anthony, and, and you know, life must be so much easier when you've got all this experience. And actually, uh, it's not. And, and I'm minded of an interview with Roy Hodgson when he was asked for that in, in the 2004 uh, quarter, uh, uh, European Championships. And uh, uh, sorry, 2016 European Championships. And they said, you know, you're the oldest manager, Roy, um, of all the teams going to be there. You know, that must give you an advantage. And he, his response was, well, and he's, he's, you know, he's got, he's a sage, sage chap, speaks six different languages, very well uh, travelled and, and educated. And he said, well, what you find about experience is that the older you get, the less valuable it is. And, and, uh, and you know, there's a, certain, there's a certain truth in that, insofar as I still, I still struggle to pick winners because we're dealing with people. And people, people are our product, are our service, are our uh, future. And they change over time. And you never know necessarily what they, what, how they're going to react in certain circumstances or what their personal, what's going on in their personal life or indeed what's going on in their mind. You know, there's a lot of mental health awareness these days and rightly so. Um, but what it, what it identifies is um, the fact or what it highlights is, is the fact that um, you know, you're never quite sure. People will give you, you know, answers at interview. People can even perform well during the day and, and seemingly understand exactly what you want them to do and how you want them to do it, or, or indeed come up with great ideas mm -hmm. and then just not implement and just not execute and just not deliver. And you can scratch your head and think, why, why aren't they? They, they you know, on paper, in interview, in the office, they seem absolutely fabulous. And yet their results aren't there. And then you have to take responsibility as the entrepreneur, as the business leader, saying, well, maybe I haven't given them the right environment. I remember somebody working for us in the late 90s, early 2000s, very enthusiastic, very keen uh, on what they were doing and very capable. And, and they just couldn't deliver under our, our format. They went to Michael Page in Switzerland and became one of their top billers in Geneva. So, you know, each to their own. Mm. What you can't do is ever predict. Uh, and that's, that's the difficulty. I, I still only get it right 51, 52% of the time. So, but, but well, if that's your, if that's, if there's your stats, at least you can factor that in, I guess. Precisely. To, to the, and if I think about the journey, so you've done 30 years, uh, what do you put, what do you, um, put down to the reason that you've enjoyed that longevity and 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 how have you I mean the iterations of Antal over the years and, and the, the sort of move the moves you've made and, and where you've focused and how you've reinvigorated the company how come 30 years later you're still strong and you're still you've got ideas popping all over the place around centres of excellence in London and opportunities in Saudi Arabia and all that sort of What's the trick to that longevity? Uh, really good question, Gordon. Really good question. And, and you know, don't don't get me wrong. I have had moments where I've thought, well, 
you know, I've done this for 15 years. I've done this for 20 years. I don't want to do it anymore. I want to do something else. And uh, I was fortunate enough to have done um, a life-changing deal back in 2008, where we sold one of the businesses for uh, tens of millions. And, uh, and that was one of the best things that happened to me. And also maybe one of the most uh, distracting things that ever happened to me because um, through hubris and uh, ego, I thought I could then become uh, the next Warren Buffett and uh, start investing in all these companies uh, that I had no idea really what their business model was, mm. let alone what their, um, what their product offering was going to be, particularly in tech. And, uh, you know, I lost a lot of money um, trying to be something that I wasn't. Um, the other thing that I did that didn't work is that I handed over the business, more or less, the recruitment side of the business, uh, whilst I did the investing, to a couple of people that I thought I'd brought along quite well and that had been with me uh, between them over 20 years at the time. Uh, but they still didn't really grasp the fundamentals of the Antal business model. Mm. And so, and what I, what I then came to the conclusion was, it's a bit like being pregnant. You, know, you can't be half pregnant in business. You're either involved and you're the major shareholder, you're the entrepreneur, you're the driving force, the buck stops with you, and, uh, or you're not. And, and so for four or five years, it was a very painful and expensive lesson for me on two fronts. One was that of the 17 or so investments that I did, very few of them are still alive. Um, and correspondingly, the, the main business that was paying all the bills um, started to go into quite rapid decline. And when there were problems, they weren't being solved. So, so those two things um, uh, meant that I had to get back into the business by the, the mid-2010s, uh, you know, 2015, 16. I had to come back into the business, started doing things that I'd done 15, 20 years before and got very demotivated by that. And uh, well, because it was, I've been here before and I'm going backwards. Precisely. And that, that was probably one of the most difficult three or four year periods of my life was having to do what I'd done so many times before and having to explain to people that I thought that should know, should know what our business model is. And clearly, because I hadn't been talking to them for six, seven, eight years, they had forgotten too what we were good at and what our business model was. And, and, and the, the whole process of going through that was like chewing on broken glass. It really was. That's the best analogy I can use because sometimes I felt I just didn't want to say it anymore because I knew it worked. I knew it was the right thing to say and to do, but I just didn't want to do it. But then over a period of time, uh, people became back on track. People came back online. And, um, and so when, you know, 2019 was a great year for us. 2020 was shaping up to be the best year ever. And of course, everybody knows what happened in, in March 2020. Um, and had I not 
come back into the business four or five years earlier and got everybody aligned to what our business model was, got rid of a few people, um, which is difficult. You know, you say it flippantly, it's really tough in the service business to let people go because they become friends, like it or not, you know, it's, I know it's business, but they do become friends. There is an emotional attachment. And by the way, just parenthesis for a while, I do think that's one of the, the, the things that keeps most recruitment companies small in the UK. You know, if you look at the 35 or 40,000 businesses that are registered, most of them are less than 10 people. In fact, the majority are less than five people. Mm. And one of the reasons for that is that um, people don't like this whole process of hiring, firing, or people leaving us, you know, like they do. And that's, again, you, you mentioned it earlier, you have to build that into your business model. Mm. Mm. It's very well, it's all very well saying that this is the model, the, it's not so easy to live that. Mm. And that's, that's the stress. That, that's what induces, I think, the, the stress in both our management and our business leaders and our entrepreneurs in recruitment is dealing with the people side of the management side of the business. Mm. Um, sorry, I forgot where we were going on that. No, we were going, no, we were going about the, the sustainability, but it's it really interesting. So forget the, um, the money you invested in different businesses, but what lessons did you what, what are kind of lessons that you reflect on because you you went through a, a dip where you had to rebuild again to bring back all those good practice that had allowed you to be so successful initially what might you have done differently if you to avoid that kind of dip that you had in the beginning of the, the tens um i think it's it's a, another good question that uh, i'm sure uh you know, people listening to this ask themselves uh, all the time and it's it, and I do on, on various things, personal and business, what would you have done differently? And, and the thing is that under the circumstances that prevailing at the time, I probably would have done it again because no one could tell, as an entrepreneur, no one can tell me, Anthony, don't put your hand in that fire. It's going to really hurt. Mm. And then, you know, as soon as someone says that to me, I want to go near to the fire. I want to have a look at it. I want to have a poke around and ultimately your hand's going to end up in the fire and it's going to really fucking hurt. And, uh, and that's what happens. And, and so really, could I, could I have avoided that? I probably couldn't have avoided that because I wanted to try and invest in all of these businesses. And uh, as painful as it's been, it's been a wonderful learning exercise. And I can pass that on to other people. I can stop people going down blind alleys that I went down or try and avoid, you know, still they'll want to go, I'm sure, including my kids who are very business oriented and very entrepreneurial. And so all of that, that I've learned, I can, I can hopefully still put into practice. And just on one, one note that all my investments haven't failed and I'm about to get a return of a number of millions of pounds on one of them. And if you ask, and this is from 11 years ago, and if you ask me what their business model is, I probably couldn't tell you. And that's, that's how hit and miss my investing was. So, so Warren Buffett, I'm not. <laughs> right, but you are, you are hugely entrepreneurial. And is that, is the, I'm interested in your attitude to risk because I had a lot of members who, who bump into you at our events and say, 
phenomenal chat with Anthony Goodwin. He's so entrepreneurial because you have a curiosity and you have an appetite to try some stuff that maybe isn't the obvious stuff that's built allowed you to build build this phenomenal business. Are you are you a risk a fundamentally a risk taker? Um, undoubtedly, you know I think. Uh, there's a couple of things. First of all, on, on TRN, and one of the reasons I, I was uh, very pleased to be approached by you and James in the early days, and, and one of the reasons I was delighted to, to be involved with TRN is the number of entrepreneurs and the range of entrepreneurs that you have within the mix now of, of nearly 200 members or, or more than 200 members in various guises. Um, and what it what it shows to me is that um, I once did a, uh, a podcast. We would have called it in those days, but um, it, sorry, we would have called it today a podcast. But in those days, it was an interview with uh, Sir Alan Sugar. The only reason I got the uh, I got the gig, if you like, was because no other journalist wanted to do it because he was known to be so brusque um, and awkward at the time. I think it was even before. Um, uh, you know, you're fired. What's the, what's his uh, show the called? The Apprentice, yeah, yeah. The Apprentice. I think it was yeah. even prior to The Apprentice days. And and one of the questions that uh, I wanted to ask him, or did ask him in the first few minutes, was about nature or nurture. So I was doing this for Manchester Business School and London Business School. And we had an audience of 300 MBAs, all of whom were learning about entrepreneurialism and learning about business. And so my question to, he might even not have been a serve that long ago, it was over 20 years ago. So my question to Alan Sugar was, you know, Alan, the, the uh, well, yeah, I think we even called him Mr. Sugar. He was so, he was so intimidating, even in those days. <laughs> and uh, uh, I said, Mr. Sugar, so, you know, Serena and Venus Williams were coached from the age of five by their father in tennis, and they have, dominated they were still dominating this is 20 years ago they're still dominating the tennis scene then yeah so early on so um what i'd like to ask you is is entrepreneurialism is it born into you are you born with it or can you nurture it can you teach people to be entrepreneurs and if you look at venus and serena williams you know would they have been good tennis players had it not been for their their father taking them out at the age of five years old to train them I think it's my first question. And the audience went silent. And he went silent. And he said, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I was thinking it's a great question. <laughs> That's what I thought. It was I too good. It was too good. I thought it was a great question too. He said, I don't know what you're talking about. I said, well, you know, is it nature or is it nurture? And he still, he still wouldn't be drawn. I said, so. Let's look at all these 350 MBA um, graduates here. Have they wasted their time? And he looked down to the audience. He's saying, what, can they be entrepreneurs? I said, yes. He said, no, they can't. They've wasted their time. <laughs> <laughs> so I had another 45 minutes to go. <laughs> Very advanced. And uh, so, so I managed to draw him out a little bit more on that. But... But I, I kind of agreed with him at the time that, um, that you can't teach entrepreneurialism. You're born with it or, or you're not. But I've, I've modified that 
view over the years because I have met ver through various um, seminars and uh, talks that I've done, panels I've been on, uh, a number of people that I would consider to be accidental entrepreneurs almost mm. insofar as they, particularly in tech, they found a good idea or they've stumbled across almost a good idea or they've been pulled into a good idea through friends and encouraged to participate. And this is where a nurturing environment, which I think we have in the UK, mm. second only to the, to the US in terms of nurturing and respecting entrepreneurs and what they do. Mm. And not this, this old aristocratic view that, you know, it's, you know, the industrialists of the new money and, and, you know, they should, they should be looked down upon and frowned upon to actually mm -hmm. to, to do business. I think that's completely turned on its head these days and rightly so, thankfully, too. Um, and, and, uh, and these people, these accidental, not completely accidental entrepreneurs, but they, they, these people, particularly within the right environment, you can bring out that, that bit of entrepreneurialism in people. And I think that's why it's so important. Things like TRN, which I think encourage entrepreneurialism and, and things outside of, uh, of the recruitment industry and business services too. Anything which encourages you know, lower taxation, for example, and, and um, entrepreneurs relief. You know, entrepreneurs relief was a great motivator mm. for me. In the deal that I did back in 2008, you know, it was really important that I didn't pay 50% tax or something like that because it really doesn't make you want to take the risks that you need to take or even work hard as you need to work in order to get it done. If you're giving away 50% of it, it's just, it's just wrong. Mm. Um, and it's not encouraging. It's not nurturing. So, so going back to your question on, you know, the kind of the nature nurture or rather my, my interpretation of it is that... Um, it, not everybody needs to be born an entrepreneur, but if I look back on my background, I was. Mm. I, I, I wanted to be an entrepreneur from the age of eight. From the age of I can't remember, yeah. I've always wanted to design or, or build a product or a service which someone would want to pay me more than it cost me to produce. Mm. It just seemed like a natural thing to do. Have you... You are one of the most curious people I know. Have you always been curious? You know, whether it's reading or asking questions, I observe you in different environments where where you're just a curious person. Have you always been interested and curious to to try and help shape your thinking? Always, always, yeah. And, and, and you know, as you rightly point out, even to this day, whether it's whether it's trying to find out uh, what COVID really. Uh, started with and how they managed that you know I'm still perplexed as the fact that we've now got um, without trying to get too political but you know 60,000 or 5,000 excess deaths a week um, which is you know in excess of 60,000 I think it's, it's going up to now whereas there was less than that during COVID mm. and why we why why we're we not reporting that and why that's not 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 um, uh, in the in the news headlines every day like COVID was where it came from all that kind of stuff. But in the same time, you know, every story that comes through, um, particularly on business, I'm keen to know, follow the money, follow the most, no, not just the money, the motivations of the people behind. How did that happen? Even right up until two hours ago, when I saw the Super Bowl has just been played out 
And Forbes magazine have done a piece on the billionaire family that own uh, the team that won. Was it the Kansas City something? Kansas City Chiefs. I mean. Kansas City Chiefs. You know, the billionaire family that um, owned that. I immediately clicked onto that story. Wasn't so much. I mean, I don't know anything about uh, NFL, really, and, and, and the Super Bowl, other than it's one of the biggest uh, sporting events in the world, simply because it's the biggest in America, with an audience of nearly 190 million people that Brianna sang at. That's the reason she sang at there. You know, I need, I need to know all that stuff. I, I absorbed that, you know, just... And, and I clicked on, and what I found was that that family... The guy that ran that family or started that family was in oil and gas. He had 15 children. Lamar Hunt owns uh, the Kansas City Chiefs. He created that himself. And it's been, although he inherited from his father hundreds of millions, couldn't have been billions because he, he was only a billionaire in those days, a very limited billionaire compared to today, but there were 15 kids to share it amongst. And his most successful investment has been creating this NFL team because they've won it now uh, twice in four seasons and they're valued at 3.7 billion. The Kansas, and, and the return on that, according to Forbes, is something like 14 million percent because he started on very little even yeah. though he was the son of a billionaire. And that kind of stuff fascinates me. You know, what else fascinates me right now is the Adani story going on in India. You know, is that going to be one of the biggest corporate failing, failings in worldwide history, and certainly in India? And what are the politics behind that? And why did the banks lend them so much money, so much more money than they lent anybody else? And is Hindenburg... Uh, in America, the, the short seller that produced the report on, on Adani, is it, is it a politically motivated, as, as a lot of Indians are saying, attack on the fabric of Indian uh, business because India is doing well and the Americans are upset with it? Who knows? But that, that's what makes life interesting to me. Mm. Very, um, my mum my and dad years ago, spent a week on a boat with Richard on Richard Branson's boat uh, they didn't know him it's a very long story we haven't got time for it but uh, anyway they ended up he wasn't meant to be there spent a week on the boat and he spent I said how was he and the, the one thing they both said my dad in particular he said listen I'm, I'm, I'm in my late 60s he just kept on asking me loads of questions he was so interested in how that age that age of, of the population considered technology and worked with it and it was um, no, it just remind me because you have got this curiosity that uh, that, that fascinates me. Can, can I can I just I'm just really interested in your when you look back as you as a leader? Obviously, you're very entrepreneurial, starting it up. And over the years, how have you changed as a leader? And I know you've surrounded yourself with a great team, but how have you evolved? Um, I've got an interesting relationship with leadership because I'm not sure that entrepreneurs are particularly good leaders. I think they're driven and most highly motivated, uh, you know, uh, but I don't necessarily think, for example, that Steve Jobs was a great leader. Mm. I think he was an incredible innovator and, uh, and, and 
amazingly focused. And, you know, if you think when they brought him back in 1996-97, Apple were going bust and they thought he was going to revamp the Mac, the MacBook. And, uh, and what he came out with was something completely different, which was, was an iPod. Mm. You know, hang on, Steve, aren't you going to tell us how we're going to beat Dell and Samsung and all these uh, computer manufacturers? And he, and he starts talking about music production. You know, that, that in itself is, is a wacky idea that worked incredibly well. But is that leadership? You know, I think, I think we, we, we get mixed up sometimes with uh, there, there are three, basically three kinds of people. The people that want fame, there's people that want money, and um, what's the other side? So there's a fame. So the, the politicians want power. Okay. Actors and people in the media and entertainment want fame. Entrepreneurs want material success, money defined by money so those are the basic and we've all got traits of each of those dominant or, or, or recessive within our personalities mm. so um leadership really i would attribute to to politicians rather than business people uh, likewise i don't think that uh, many actors are particularly good leaders and we, we imbue them with characteristics of the characters that they play, which is quite bizarre, but that's what we do. Um, where, and, and entrepreneurs are there to shake up markets, also get some recognition. I think you know, they, they, there is this desire for, for fame, more on the fame side for you know, the Elon Musks of this world um, um, and Richard Branson's of this world than, 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 um, than the power. Um, but I think if you want power, then you have to demonstrate leadership skills. And I'm not sure that entrepreneurs do. Coming back to the question on me, how I've evolved, um, then, then I would say that uh, finally I've matured. Finally, I've grown up. <laughs> Questionable. <laughs> it's take, yeah. No, that's, the question mark is still over, over it. If, you, if you've seen me at some of the great TRM events, you'd probably question that. But um, no, I... I I do think it's taken me an inordinate amount of time. And uh, what's made me grow up is the fact that my kids are now about my same mental age and they're in their twenties. So, so I've got to try and, I've got to try and leapfrog them now and get into my thirties. Um, and, and that maturity is, has got its advantages in, in so far as you're, you know, you're, you're a little bit more measured and I don't, and I think I've become, less risk oriented than I was and more considered than I was, which has meant actually that the Antal as a group has never been more stable and never been, never had a better balance sheet despite COVID, despite um, being in regions where, where you know, um, we've had uh, conflict uh, and being hit by that more than most. Um, and, uh, you know, being, being wanting and being able to delegate correctly, that, that's such an important task. Someone asked me a couple of weeks ago over dinner, you know, how, how do you manage? We, we've got 800 people under the, the, the Antal umbrella, 1,200 if you talk, talk about the businesses in China, uh, which we still own a significant percentage of, and, and uh, Poland, which is subject to a management buyout. But how do you do that? 
And uh, one of the ways that you relinquish some control and you delegate is that you don't expect people to do it more than 70%, if you're lucky, the way that you would have done it. But at the same time, the, the advantage of that is that they will come out with ideas and ways of doing things that you hadn't thought of if you delegate properly. And again, that was a Steve job, Jobism, wasn't it? That, you know, we don't hire smart people and then tell them what to do. We are hire smart people so they can tell us what to do. Now, I'm not sure that's strictly true in, 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 in all levels of the organization at Apple. You need, you know, you need doers, you need executors, you need, you need process. Mm. And, and I certainly need that. Uh, and I've surrounded myself with people that are really good at that. Uh, that aspect of the business um, and so if, if you're you know combining that question with leadership again um, then then that I suppose is leadership is you're, you're, you're delegating out to people that can do stuff better than you can and not feeling threatened by it, the fact that they can do it better than you I'm delighted you know for me if something happens if there's a success in the business that I haven't touched or had anything or any contact with or anything to do with, that's that's the time for me to celebrate. Mm. Um, you, um, I'm interested how you define entre an entrepreneur, because every time you refer to an entrepreneur, for um, they are the, the the sort of game changers. Do, do you is somebody who sets up a recruitment business business doing? something that already exists, but just working hard and giving it a go and, and trying to do it better. Are they, are they an entrepreneur for you? Yes. Anybody who runs their own business from, from you know, even just, uh, I say even just, but just being a, a, a one-man business is taking on an aspect of life which is fundamental to our very existence of human beings which is they're taking responsibility for themselves and for their clients and their candidates and or their customers, mm. uh, which, is, which is an amazing thing to do, particularly these days when we expect the state, uh, wrongly in my view, we expect the state to look after us and we expect the government to tell us uh, what to do because they're going to look after us. I think that's a very dangerous uh, perspective and the statistic that, that, that horrified me the other day was that 53% um, of the population in the UK take out more from um, social uh, security and, and, and uh, uh, government handouts than they actually give back mm. so that we are reliant upon a very few uh, high tax paying rate to, to support the rest of the the, the country and uh, you know that that to me is uh, an anathema of the liberal left um who uh, seem to be taking the country down the wrong route but again won't get too much into politics at this stage although it is, is fundamental to my life um uh but yeah you know so small business doing the same thing a me too business is still entrepreneurial mm. and, and let's be fair there are very few truly unique businesses i mean even if you go back to the history of google you know uh larry page and sergey Sir, brin didn't want to advertise 
And as I told my sons yesterday, in 1998-99, their major backers said that if you don't pull out an algorithm that encourages advertising, we're going to pull funding on the next round. Mm. So now they are the biggest advertising platform in the world. Mm. And so that's what, not what they started out to do. Mm. Um, and it was, it was a unique idea. And unique ideas are few and far between. If we all waited as entrepreneurs to do something unique, we'd never mm. be entrepreneurs. So to taking that, for, I would encourage everybody to take that first step into entrepreneurialism, but knowing that it's not for the faint-hearted, knowing that you probably will fail, but give it a go anyway. And so, yes, I, th I think anybody who takes their own destiny into their hands is being entrepreneurial. Mm. Obviously, some people do it better than others. Yeah, yeah. Now, I was just interested between that, the entrepreneur and the leader, because... I certainly consider our, our members, for example, entrepreneurs. Uh, Definitely. Giving it a go, and they need to get the leadership right, particularly in that sort of size of, size of business that many of them might be in. Um, um, quick, um, I'm conscious of time. We might have to continue this, this, this over a beer, Anthony. But um, okay. just a, a couple of quick fire questions. Um, just, you just told me before we came on, you just you popped out 17 kilometer K run yesterday. Mm. How do you, how do you, um, and I will just say you're not as young as you were 30 years, obviously, but <laughs> how have you just kept yourself, um, kept yourself fit and healthy over these years? Because you, oh, as an entrepreneur, you are, are fairly consumed by your business, like we all are. Yeah, I, I, I think it fits into my business life and personal life extremely well. And I thank David Crossley. Uh, 12 years ago, who suggested that I do the Great North Run, which is a half marathon. And, you know, I was in my late 40s then. I thought, well, crikey, you know, I can't run 21 kilometres. I can't run two kilometres, let alone 21. I was going to the gym a lot, but not doing very much aerobic exercise. And, uh, and that started me, you know, getting ready for that and, and, and doing it in sub two hours, one minute, one hour 53, uh, really set me on the path of... of uh, of wanting to stay fit and healthy. And coming back to your question on motivation, you know, back in the, uh, the middle of the 2010s, 2015, 16, 17, when I was, was running, that enabled me to think things through more clearly. Mm -hmm. So although you might be running for an hour, an hour and a half in training, you're still thinking about the business. And it's, it's almost like drinking a coffee. You know, you might be foggy in the morning and you get that clarity after about half an hour. Same thing happens with me and running is that, uh, that I leave the office with, with so much, so many calls, emails, text messages, channels of communication going into my head like we all do these days. Um, and then once I'm running around Regent's Park and, and up on Primrose Hill on a day like today, it's clear blue skies but even when it's cold and miserable and rainy it's still refreshingly uh fantastic to to experience that um uh clarity of thought and and uh, to have done something that you didn't necessarily want to do and i don't know what it is about life you know that all the things that we don't want to do tend to be good for us yeah. Uh, you know, and, and I have to say that um, often I feel better 
after the event than actually during the event. Um, yeah. And and so, but it but from a from a point of view of, of holistically looking after one's mind, body, and soul, then for me, it's running. It, it really does do the trick. And I hope, you know, I, I wish upon everybody else that they find something like that, whatever it is, whoever it is, you know, whether it's relationship, whether it's a hobby, whether it's, you know, um, and hopefully it's not drinking, doesn't involve drinking too much because uh, that, that can have its negative impact as well. But, you know, whatever it is, uh, just do it. Do, do, do something outside of uh, the mainstream and, 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 and get, even if it's walking, you know, my mother, bless her, passed a few years ago, but she used to walk everywhere. She used to do a lot of walking, which kept her healthy right up to the age of 90. Uh, and uh, and so you know exercise is part of business. That's the way I see it. I see I see doing an hour, an hour and a half run as as important as a meeting with uh, a group of stakeholders in the business, uh, big client presentations, uh, going to a TRM, TRM board meeting, which are thoroughly enjoyable, going to a HUD TRM huddle. Um, or, or doing anything which you would say, well, that's business. Well, for me, so is going for a run. Yeah, yeah, no, I love it. Okay, and finally, anyone that's any individual that's particularly inspiring you, and any business that's particularly inspiring you right here, right now. And you could probably come up with a list. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, there's, there is one in particular. Let me just go and get a visual aid to this. Bear go, with on, go on, go um, on. Oh, I love it. Well, you better so, say who it is. Uh, you, uh, you know, I thoroughly recommend this book to everybody. I even said to my son, who's just finishing his business studies degree, and, and one who's just to embark on his degree, I said, look, if you read this book and you understand some of the, even just some of the concepts in it, mm. you probably don't need to do your degree. But I don't <laughs> recommend that to everyone talking to their children. But yeah, I mean, yeah, he, he gets... He, a lot of politically charged negativity now because of Twitter. Ignore that. That's all bollocks. You know, this guy is the real deal. And he's the real deal because, and it it's comes across throughout the book, that although he made money out of Zip2 and PayPal, when he went into Tesla, or SpaceX first and then Tesla, he spent... 200, the $250 million that he made out of PayPal and the money he made out of Zip2 netted about $190 million. That went into both the other ventures to the point where he didn't have any money. Nobody else does that. Mm. Nobody else does that. And he understands what he's doing as well, which is quite phenomenal. I love it. No, I love it. Uh, that was, for those listening, Elon Musk. Um, and I'm, I'm right with you, actually. I've been seeing a documentary very recently. Um, utterly obsessive about him phenomenal guy um anthony listen massive th a thanks for coming on um b massive congratulations 30 years of building a and just i i think a completely unique organization i absolutely love every move you make uh, it fascinates me and uh, thank you for all the support you've given us at trn it's been great um we'll see my pleasure and we'll follow this up best is yet to come absolutely absolutely <laughs> thanks, thanks gordon See you really soon. Enjoyed it. All the best. Don't forget to follow the TRM podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts for a new exciting episode every week.